Pliny, more formally known as Pliny the Younger, was a Roman politician, judge, and author. He was born in the year 61, 61 AD, and he died in the year 113 AD. We currently have 247 letters that he wrote. Many of them were to the Roman emperor Trajan. One of the duties of the Roman magistrates was to report on the expanding movement known as the Way. The people of the Way, they were not violent. The people of the Way did not oppress others, but they did have some peculiarities about them. They were odd to others in the Roman Empire. Most threatening, though, for Pliny was the allegiance that the people of the way gave to a man named Jesus, whom they also called the Christ. The followers of the way started to become known as Christians because they followed Jesus, whom they called the Christ. You can see that in Acts chapter 9. That's why we are called Christians, because we follow the one who is the Christ. Now, They knew that the Christ was the anointed one from the Jewish scriptures, the king. And so in one of his many letters, Pliny is describing the actions of the Christians to Emperor Trajan. He says that many of them have been collected. Many of the Christians have been persecuted. Many of the Christians have been jailed. And now he's looking for counsel from Emperor Trajan on how to handle the growing number of Christians, because despite all the efforts of the Roman Empire, the way is expanding. More and more people are giving their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And he describes the actions of these Christians. He says that they have begun to sing hymns to Christ. Now, a hymn is not a uniquely Christian thing. It was usually sung to a military hero in the Roman world or to a god in the Roman world. And so now they're singing, in particular, was waving a red flag to the Roman authorities. They were threatened by the movement and the singing shows that they meant business. In one letter, Pliny wrote that the Christians affirmed, however, the whole of their guilt or their error. Or sorry, he was saying that the whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. I'm not going to suggest that for us. And they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Christians throughout our 2,000 plus years of history have become known as a people who meet together on a certain day of the week. And part of what we do is we sing to Jesus Christ, who is our God. You see, Christians have done odd things in the eyes of the world for the past 2,000 years. But Pleasing things in the eyes of God. So often, what we're called to do as Christians make no sense to the world. Uh, Consider the very life of Jesus. How him hanging out with blue-collared workers, white-collared workers, corrupt government employees known as tax collectors, prostitutes, those from lower class, those from the upper class. No one could figure out Jesus. And so, too, people who follow in his footsteps look strange to the eyes of the world. Matter of fact, we don't just look strange sometimes. We often look foolish. But what often looks foolish to the world, God calls wisdom. In this passage in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is calling the Ephesian church to wisdom. And to spirituality. And more specifically, he's calling them to examine their lives. That they might walk in wisdom and walk in true spirituality. 
Our text is found on page 978 of your pew Bible, which is the Bible right in front of you. And we'll be looking at Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, found on page 978 of your pew Bible. Follow along with me as I read. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Pray with me one more time. Lord, according to your word, when your word is preached, When people are exhorted to turn from their sins and to trust you by faith, your spirit works powerfully. And so we pray that you would work powerfully among us, Holy Spirit. Help us to see the goodness and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Help us to see the ways in which we're walking, which are foolish. And help us to walk in wise ways. Create in us more and more of a church that is built upon Christ and worships him in spirit and truth. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Our passage this morning is is exhorting us to examine our walk. To examine our walk. And particularly, we're going to break the sermon down into two points. A call to the wise and a call to the spiritual. A call to the wise, verses 15 to 17. In verse 15, we see that the apostles calling the church to individually examine their lives. The language of walking is is more illustrative than just saying to be careful how you live. So he's saying be careful how you walk. That is your day in, day out habits. How you devote your time each day. And Paul keeps using this language of walking. So if you look back at at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapters 1 to 3 are heavy on on doctrine. And chapters 3 and 6 still have this doctrine. But we see more imperatives in how to to live. And so that starts, we see that starting out in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, "Um, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Christians there are encouraged to or urged to walk worthy in the manner of the calling to which you have been called. Look at 4.17. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Look at 5.2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then Earlier in our last time we were in Ephesians, we were encouraged to walk as children of the light, not as children in darkness. And now the call, similar yet different. The call is to examine your life, that you live as a wise person, not as a foolish person. The exhortation is to look carefully, to pay careful attention, or as the King James Version puts it, see then that ye walk circumspectly. It seems that we need this command, especially for the days that we live in right now. Fast paced, lack of patience, always having an option to be entertained. I mean, you have a, 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 a cinema in your pocket if you get bored. You can go to YouTube and find an entertaining video. And how many of us, with our time that we've been given, use it to be entertained? It's so easy when we're bored to find an outlet rather rather than to look carefully then how you walk. 
Church, it's easy to go through the motions of life and and never examine ourselves. And now wisdom in God's word is calling you, it's calling me out and saying, redeem the time because the days are evil. Reminds us of the passage that Paul read just a bit ago from Proverbs chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so Proverbs is poetically poetically given to us like a father speaking to his son and giving him exhortations so that his son does not walk a wayward path and experience unnecessary suffering that sin inevitably leads to. And so Proverbs 1.8, Hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Wisdom is calling to us, Christian, calling us to examine our lives because the days are evil. And when you look more carefully at the book of Ephesians, you see just how wisdom is spoken about. So turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. We want to stand, understand if wisdom in Ephesians were helped out by understanding how it's used in other places. So Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here's his wisdom. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and on earth. Now look at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 8 to 10. So, so far we see that the apex of God's wisdom is seen in this mystery being unfolded which is Christ. His beloved son, ransoming a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation for himself. That's God's wisdom. So look at Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And now Paul says to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, because the days are evil. So we cannot divorce wisdom in chapter 5 from wisdom in chapter 1 and wisdom in chapter 3. God's The very center of God's plan unfolding is his wisdom as seen through putting forth Christ and Christ dying for sinners from every tongue, tribe, and nation. To be wise, Christian, is grasping God's plan of saving people through Christ. To be wise, according to the book of Ephesians, is grasping God's plan of saving people through Christ. And one step further... Is looking at wisdom, being wise, and living in light of grasping the Lord's will. So the Lord's will has been disclosed to us. Chapters 1, chapter 3. And now, more specifically, we're called to be wise in light of God's wisdom. Wisdom now says that our days are limited. Wisdom says that life is a precious gift. Wisdom says that the flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Wisdom says, along with Psalm 90, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may Get a heart of wisdom. 
Wisdom is knowing that the time is short, that each day is a gift from God, and that God has given us the plan of salvation, and we behold it as wisdom. The days are evil, though, and they allure us away from wisdom, and they bring us to the opponent of wisdom, which is foolishness. Evil calls out to us, children, much like cheese in a mouse trap calls out to a mouse. Do you know that, John? To catch a mouse, you can sometimes put cheese in a mouse trap. You know that, Eliza? So consider that mouse looking at that piece of cheese. The wise and experienced mouse, as many of us know who have lived in places with mice before. By the way, my house has no mice in it now. And it hasn't since we lived there. I want all of you to keep coming over our house when we invite you. But we've lived in places like Washington, D.C. in row homes when there have been mice living in there longer than, than most people are alive. And the thing about it is the experienced mouse does not fall for cheese. And it even is so crafty and skillful that it gets the cheese and knows how to not let the trap goes off. That's why you use peanut butter because it's stickier. But anyway, sticking with the cheese illustration here. The foolish mouse says, cheese, it smells good. I know cheese. It tastes good too. And that cheese just happens to be sitting there. It's calling me to itself. And then, because it wants to be happy, it goes and eats the cheese. And what happens, kids? The mouse is caught and the mouse dies. A sudden death or a slow death. That's the foolish mouse. The days are evil mean that we are being summoned each and every day to forsake God's wisdom, which is his will. And follow the will of the corruptive world, the cunning serpent, and to give in to the lusts of our fallen flesh. And each day we are met with people and ideas that counter God's will of conforming us to his image and displaying his light through us and calling us to forsake that. Wisdom, on the other hand, is calling us to be aware, to be on guard, to examine our lives because we know the point of this world is to give glory to Jesus Christ. You will not read that headline in the Kansas City Star. Today, your aim is to give glory to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Everywhere around us, we see subtle lies of putting sometimes important things over and above giving glory to Christ and seeing the wisdom of God's plan. So Paul says here, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand as much as God has given us his mind, understand that the, what the will of the Lord is. And this is a common prayer in scripture. So we think about the, the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter six, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or we think about the high priestly, or we think about in John six, When Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Praise God, Christian, if you understand the will of God. By beholding Jesus as good and as beautiful and as worthy of giving your whole lives to. That's an act of God's spirit. And so Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then as we read earlier, Ephesians 1, 9. The will of God is to unite all things in Christ. And so if you're in Christ this morning, God has told you the will for your life. Isn't that amazing? God has said the will, my will for your life is that you might behold Jesus. 
You see, if the will of God is to purchase you by the blood of Christ, to sanctify you by the Holy Spirit, and to one day come back from his throne and collect you, wisdom in this life looks like living for that day and not merely for these days. Because if you live for these days, you'll be prone to evil deeds because these days are evil. If you live for the life to come, then you will look odd in this world. You will look odd in your big sweeping ambitions like moving your family to South Asia. And you will be odd in the day to day. Like waking up early Sunday morning, coming here and gathering with other Christians. You will be odd in so many ways by joyfully living for a crucified Savior. When you, you'll be odd in that you, by saying each day is a gift from God and a treasure, uh, each day is a gift from God to display his glory. So just consider all the, the various ways, Warnell Road, that, that people might be looking at you and saying, that's a bit odd. And then be encouraged that you're following the will of God. You're here on Sunday morning. Many of you give of what you make uh, throughout your, through your job. You give a portion of that back to the church. That's odd to the world. I was thinking about various members in our church, thinking of, of Leah Emmerich writing letters to Cynthia and to different teens and preteen girls in our church. The world thinks that's odd. Christina Biller meeting with young women on her Saturday mornings to go through the scriptures with them. The world considers that odd. God considers that wise living. Many of you have decided to live closer to this church building so that you can, uh, in, in, uh, in for you, more faithful ways, serve the church. Many people think that's odd that you would give up land and house size to live closer to the church. Many of you live further away from the church and your neighbors might look at you and say, why would you drive so far to this church? And Nick and Hannah, what you are about to do makes no sense unless God has revealed the mystery of his will to you. And he has because you see the cross as foolish. As you don't see the cross as foolish, but as the wisdom and power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And praise God, that's why you're doing what you're doing. Not some fanciful desire that you want to fulfill, but because you want to see people saved by beholding Jesus. Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And in God's plan of salvation, the way that people do that is by churches sending people, those people proclaiming the good news, people hearing the good news and accepting it by faith. See, the days are evil, but we behold Jesus and believe in God's wise plan And this can look odd in this world. Church, be encouraged by the various ways God has displayed his wisdom through us. Well, secondly, we see a call to be a call to the spiritual. A call to the spiritual. Verse 18 kind of pops out of nowhere. When I was a new Christian, when I was 16, I was reading Philippians. Then I went to Ephesians. And this verse is just one of the ones I, I quickly remembered. Do not get drunk on wine because it leads to debauchery. And just kind of stopped there. I had no idea where, what was before it or after it. It just kind of stuck to me. And then I kind of used that in my legalist fervor to tell people not to get drunk. Um, that's not a great way to read the Bible, by the way. You must read it in its context to understand what Scripture is calling us to. But we do have a prohibition here of drunkenness. Not of alcohol. But of drunkenness, because drunkenness is a clear example of the opposite of being filled with God's spirit. We see this in other places in Proverbs chapter 20, verse one. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And whoever's led astray by it is not wise. See another pairing of wisdom and drunkenness. Or Isaiah 5, to 23, we see that the leaders of Israel were mixing strong drink, becoming drunk. And because the leaders of Israel were drunk so often, the people under their leadership suffered heavily. So God says, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine 
and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. Church, drunkenness has negative effects. I know many of you, many of you know me and and, and some of my upbringing. Drunkenness is no innocent sin. It affects the people that are around you. And so just a quick word, because we don't see this pop up in the Bible very often. If you're struggling with, with, with drinking too much, talk to someone about it. There are people in this room who have had periods of drinking too much. And there are many of us in this room who have been raised by parents or relatives who have struggled with drinking too much. The main point, though, of here is to put something as foolish as being ruled by strong drink and wine. Contrasting that with a life filled with God's Holy Spirit. You see, we already know from chapter 1 that we are sealed with the Spirit. Meaning we can't lose God's Spirit. But it does seem as we read the scriptures that we have the ability to decrease ourselves so that Christ may increase in us. And this is the work of of the third person of the Spirit, the Holy, uh, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And as we decrease, the sealed Spirit in us increases more and more. And then we see three really effects of this. We see three effects of a life filled by the Spirit. So look at verse 19. Singing, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Let me go. If, if some of you are uh, uh, wonderful note takers, and I know it from uh, uh, you asking me questions afterward that sometimes I'm not as clear as I want to be. So let me go ahead and give you those three things right now. So singing, thanking, and submitting. All right there in the text. And they follow each verse, 19, 20, and 21. Three effects of being filled by the Holy Spirit. So singing, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Well, notice, first of all, who are we singing to? Look at verse 19. You would assume it might say singing to God, but it actually says singing to one another. So we are, in a sense, when we gather together, a mark of the Holy Spirit is that we sing to each other. The command to, is given to the church that we might sing to each other. In our singing, as Colossians says, chapter 3, verse 16, in our singing, we're also teaching each other about the message of Christ. So that Christ may dwell more richly in us. One wrote in our singing, of course, it's to God. But in a unique way, we are singing to one another so that we can, along with the Apostle Paul, teach and warn one another when we're gathered together. Our singing is an integral part of our sanctification. Colossians 3 says, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You may want to... Help me grow in Christ. If you may want to help your neighbor grow in Christ, we'll sing loudly so that they can hear you. That has a positive effect on our lives. And so I wonder about you, Christian, if you see as part of your duty when you come here to sing loudly to God, yes, but also to one another. Do you consider how you can admonish one another and teach one another with your singing? How many of you have left this place on Sunday morning and been encouraged? And maybe you're not really thinking about the sermon much. Maybe the prayer's not much, but you actually remember the singing. That's a means of grace by God. Some of the most encouraging times in our singing is when the musicians drop off and they've kind of gotten us to the place where they're supposed to. We're all kind of singing loudly and less, we're thinking less about our own voices 
And we just hear all the voices of the saints gathered. What a picture of that day when we will be with Christ face to face singing to him. Our soul is, is soothed and by the rich treasure we possess together in Jesus Christ. If you're not yet a Christian and you're here, we're, ga- we're glad that you gathered here with us. Uh, you might wonder why Christians sing. Well, it's been part of what God's people have done. Um, specifically, when we see God rescue his people from bondage of slavery in Egypt and bring them out. We see one of the first things that Moses does is he sings to the Lord about his power, his might, and his mercy. And you really see this all throughout the history of God's people. One of those places you see that is in Ezra. Uh, Israel has been taken captive and been exiled from their city in Jerusalem. And they've been held captive by the Babylonians. And upon their return back to Jerusalem, they are instructed to build a temple. Because their first temple was destroyed. And they build this temple. And in this temple, this is when it was completed in the year 515 B.C., We see recorded in the book of Ezra chapter 3 that they are to devote a lot of time to singing. So Ezra 3 chapter 10 says this. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord for, this is what they sang, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. If you're not yet a Christian, you're with us. I'm glad you've decided to join us this morning. We sing because we have a sure and steady foundation in Jesus Christ. You see, that second temple was also destroyed in the year 70 AD by the Romans. And in fact, the real temple, Jesus Christ, was also destroyed on the cross. But God, in his power and wisdom, rose Christ from the dead three days later. And Jesus makes it clear that he is now the temple. He was destroyed But death could not hold him down. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And he said, all that come to him, who turn from their sin and come to him in faith and repentance of their sins will be saved. We think that we are doomed without Christ. That we are headed on a path toward hell, eternal separation and punishment for being sinners. And God in his mercy He revealed the beauty and the glory of Christ. Now we come to him and are saved from our sins because all our sin was placed on Christ. And he rose from the dead and ascended to be to sit at the right hand of the father on high. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. I'm just challenge you to consider maybe asking someone around you or coming and finding me or or one of the people you, you saw up here today and asking them about this message. We would love to spend, even miss the Chiefs game, and tell you more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. One wrote, part of the way you can love your church is to sing more loudly. I'm so encouraged here that we're in a church where men sing. I, I remember uh, hearing that stereotype. I, I wasn't raised in the church, but when I be, started going to church at the age of 15, I started seeing that usually it was the women that were singing. And a lot of men just kind of stood there. I thought, what is this? What's going on here? And then I kind of heard the stereotypes uh, throughout the years of men not singing. And then by the grace of God, I was involved in a robust college ministry where men sang. And I've been in churches ever since where I see men and women singing loudly. And I'm so encouraged that our children, young boys and girls, can see both men and women singing loudly in this church. What a great corporate witness for them as they grow up. You see, your fellow Christian needs to hear you sing. So that when we are discouraged, we can hear you sing along with us. Dark, dark is the wilderness. Jesus is mine. 
Or when we are discouraged, we can hear you saying, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Or maybe when you're feeling a bit apathetic, you can hear others beckon you by singing, come behold the wondrous mystery at the dawning of the king, the theme of heaven's praises, he who robed in frail humanity. Or maybe when you're just tired of plodding through this life and you're especially tired of being tempted by the same sin over and over again, you've begged God to remove this thorn in your flesh. What a grace it is in the moment to hear others singing along with you. In the dark of night before the dawn, my soul be not afraid for the promised morning. Oh, how long, O God of Jacob, be my strength. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. That's the spirit working in our midst. We are the new temple of God founded on the foundation of Christ. Don't take this delightful duty for granted. We have brothers and sister Christians all throughout the world who meet in apartments and have to whisper so their neighbor wouldn't call the police on them. And they'd be taken off to jail because of their devotion to Christ, much like Christians living in the Roman Empire. So friends, sing loudly. Sing loudly. And, and just so you know, that this is a normal part. We, we, the scripture here says sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In our church, we want to incorporate more and more psalms as we sing. But we also see it as wise to sing different hymns. We see different hymns, for instance, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. That's often, uh, that's often uh, believed to be an early Christian hymn. There's one in 1 Timothy 3.16. Which says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory. It's an early Christian hymn. See, all of our singing should be with the aim of having us dwell more and more upon the gospel of God. Bob Coughlin says that every part of a lyric should link together to bring a wonderful, thoughtful, deep expression of Scripture to every singer. So not every song we sing here explains the full gospel, but almost every song we sing explains the full gospel. And if this song doesn't, the next song will. And if those songs don't, then our prayers do, and the sermon does. Everything is aiming toward the gospel of God. So just, again, so you might know how the song selection process works at Warnell Road. One question that, that we ask when we consider a song is, can this song be sung to a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Meaning, is this just a love song that can be sang to just anyone? And you'd be surprised if you listen to certain radio stations, some really popular Christian songs, you might actually answer that question in the affirmative. This song could be sung to my romantic partner. Another, song, another question we ask is, can a non-Christian sing this song? Or is there anything that would cause them to stop singing? A third question that we can ask is, can a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon sing this song? Can someone who doesn't believe that Jesus is God sing this song? You'd be surprised if you YouTube the uh, Mormon Tabernacle, how many songs, uh, Mormon Tabernacle Choir, how many songs they actually sing that have been sung in many churches. And another song, another question we ask, is this song singable? There are some marvelous hymns that just are written to melodies that are really hard to sing. Another question we ask is, do we have the resources? Some songs are fantastic, but man, they'd be really helped out if we had a, a violin with that song, or if we had this instrument or that instrument. That's just kind of behind the scenes of how some of our songs are picked, but it is an important part of our ministry, and it looks odd in the eyes of the world. Well, the second thing that looks odd in the eyes of the world when it comes to uh, being filled with God's Spirit is thanksgiving. Look at verse 20. 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says here to give thanks in all things for everything. We know to give thanks with happy, when, when happy things occur, right? It's, it's something, a promotion you've been waiting for, a relationship that's being rekindled, a good time with a friend. When you see your kids succeed at something you want them to succeed at, uh, it's natural and normal for us to say, thank you, God, praise God. But what's not natural to our flesh is to give thanks when hard things happen. So a mark here, and Paul's very explicit. He says all things, everything, because he knows hard things come in the Christian life. And so a second mark of being filled with the Spirit is the practice of giving thanks in everything for even hard things to God the Father. You see, trials don't only conform us to the image of Christ. Yes, they purify us like gold in the refiner's fire, but they press us into the heart of Christ. So, Christian brother and sister, our Father is not surprised by fiery trials that come our way. Even hard ones, even ones that we kind of created because of our own sin. We can trust that all things given to us are to be received with thanksgiving. One of the best places to see this is in Romans chapter 8. So I'm going to ask you to flip over a few pages to Romans 8. I've been teaching two Bible studies on Romans. One's at Tuesday morning at 6.15 a.m. And the other is at Tuesday, on Tuesday as well at 3.30. And it's been the highlight, I think, of each of the whole semester has been when we get to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says this. This is a very popular verse if you're new to Christianity. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So note there, the similarity between Ephesians chapter 5 verse 20, all things. And then here, Romans 28, 8, 28, all things. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see the logic there? If God's giving you Jesus Christ, the most ultimate and the most precious gift you can ever have, how much more will he give us all things? And so part of those all things are what's found in verse 35. So look there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul's including in these all things very, very hard things. Singleness. Infertility, difficulty raising children, children difficulty being under your parents' authority, a job that you're tired of and you want a new one, financial issues, horrible things that have happened in the past. He says tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. He's calling the Christian to trust God in what he can't see because God's already giving you Jesus Christ. And do you remember just how foolish it looked for Jesus to be crucified? The king of the Jews on the cross. That looks like folly to the world. 
Paul says in Romans 8, as it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul did not understand all his trials, but he did understand the glory of Jesus Christ and how beautiful he was. And so because he saw this most precious gift from God the Father, anything and everything that comes his way, he gives to God. He says, I praise you in what I don't understand. And God, I'm even able to thank you in what I cannot see because I do see Christ as beautiful and as glorious. And I can give you thanks in every circumstance for all things. Because I can trust you as a good heavenly father. That's weird, Christian. The world will look at that, that response to that trial and say, that is odd. That doesn't make sense. That's unjust. You are crazy. And scripture says, that's the wisdom of God. And the good news is, Christian, one day we will understand God's plan more fully. But for now, we walk by faith, trusting him in what we can't see because we can trust him enough. He who did not spare his own son, how much more will he, can we trust him because he has given us all things? I really butchered that verse. I'm going to read it again. It's such a good verse. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, graciously give us all things? What a good, kind father to give us such a word as this. Christian, talk about these hard things with other Christians in this church. You have a bunch of saints around you who want to help you and kindly walk with, through, walk with you through hard trials. I have done it time and time again when I'm feeling lonely and distressed and alone and I have no idea how I'm going to make it. And I have found faithful brothers and sisters in this church to pray with me, to read scripture to me, and to encourage me. You have a band of brothers and sisters who are willing and wanting to do that in this church. Praise God for that. That is a miraculous gift. Third thing, quickly. The third odd thing, odd mark of being filled with the Spirit is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm not going to unpack this verse as much as I want to because we're going to see lots of examples of submitting to one another in the rest of chapter 5 and also in chapter 6. But I just want to make one specific application to Nick and Hannah. Since this is the last time I'm preaching to you guys for at least a long time. You go to a land that will... Mock this verse, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You might even be tempted to help plant churches that kind of push this idea to the side. See, in a land that has a caste system and different social settings, this idea might even be especially hard. It might feel like an unclimbable mountain. But... If you believe in this text, when you consider building the church in the place that you're going to, when the world sees Christians submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that will display the gospel like a diamond on a piece of black cloth. It will compel others to have, to look toward Christ. To have this Christ-like service to others regardless if they're a woman or if they're a man. Regardless if they are Brahmin in the highest caste or the lowest caste of Shudra. Or even in the non-caste of Dalits. This will look weird and you will be tempted to plant a church based on these ungodly social settings. This mutual care of others. Propping others up because they are part of the same body as you are can only be done in the power of the Spirit. 
And it will look weird. You will be hard-pressed to disciple people through these ungodly social settings. But when you have people giving their lives to Christ, from a Muslim background, from a Hindu background, from an upper caste, from a lower caste, and they are coming together, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, the wisdom of God is displayed in supernatural ways. And the world will say that's odd, that's weird. You might even people say, I'll come gather only if you separate castes in our gathering. Nick and Hannah, don't be tempted to give in to that lie. God's power is strong enough to break down those barriers. It has broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. It can do that with the people you're going to. And when a group of Christians commits to one another around this purpose and they pray to the same Father to open their eyes, the Spirit works miracles. This can happen in any church across the globe. And when we use our own man-centered wisdom to build churches on the homogenous unit principle or whatever, whatever, whatever else we might try, we are saying, God, you're not that wise in this area. We have a little bit more wisdom of you. We know how to grow your church. Don't give in to that temptation again. Don't believe the lie that mutual submission slows down the gospel. It doesn't slow it down. It highlights it. And trust God to build his church. In conclusion, it looks foolish to sing. It looks foolish to give thanks in all circumstances. It looks foolish to submit out of, to one another out of reverence for Christ. Church, we look like a bunch of fools in the eyes of the world. And that's okay. Because in the eyes of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this is, his, this is the plan of the Father. That we might be founded on, his, on the foundation of Christ. That we might display God's power and wisdom to the world. The Spirit is truly at work in this church. And we have much to give thanks to. Before I close in prayer, just spend a few moments reflecting on the truths you heard in the sermon. And then we'll pray, we'll sing one song together, and then we'll ask Nick and Hannah to come center. And we'll pray for them, sing, and send them off. Heavenly Father, teach us what it means to follow in the footsteps of Christ. We've been warned to take up our cross and to follow him. We've been told that a servant is not greater than his master. We've been told that they will malign us and revile us. We've also been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and sealed in him. So that when these things happen, our faith doesn't have to be weakened, but it can be strengthened. So we pray, O oh God, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would be a singing people, a church full of gratitude, a church that considers the needs of others above our needs. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.